He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. He tells me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. The American Health Care Act is out, everybody. Oh, my. Oh, my. We can talk quite a bit about this one today. We've been waiting. Buck Saxon with America Now, of course, here with you. 844-900-2825. Would love to hear from some of you that have had to deal specifically with the exchange, the Obamacare exchange in your state, if that's something you're willing to call in and share. Because everyone I've spoken to who has dealt with the exchange at some point in time, everybody I know who's been on Obamacare says pretty much the same thing. It's really bad. Unless you happen to be somebody who couldn't get insurance before and now can get insurance and had either a serious pre-existing condition or came down with a, a terrible illness, which, of course, then you really want to have health insurance instead of not having it. Everybody else I know who's reasonably healthy, has their issues, but has had to go on an Obamacare exchange plan, says that it's terrible and also keeps changing. So that's no fun. You know, your doctor that you can see one year is not your doctor you can see the next year is not your doctor you can see the year after that. You can imagine where that leads people. That makes them pretty annoyed. And for years now, we have had uh, voting in the House, voting in the Senate, all of this talk, all of these discussions from Republicans promising, promising to do something about Obamacare. And they've been talking about what it would be. And now, of course, they, we, we give them the House. We give them the Senate. We've got a Republican president who says he is also dedicated to getting rid of this law and replacing it with much better health care for everybody. And what's come up today is, yes, of course, conservative opposition to the GOP House bill known as the American Healthcare Act. It was published last night when I was on air. I was able to read off to you some of the bullet points that the House put out, of course, highlighting their favorite parts of this. And as I said from, from the beginning, they have definitely taken some parts of Obamacare that they realize are politically popular, and they have used those for their own purposes now. So pre-existing conditions, those will still be covered. And staying on your parents' health insurance until you're 26, that will still be a part of all of this. And the Medicaid expansion, they're going to probably keep that in most states in some capacity. This is what they were saying. So the goodies still keep flowing, right? The, all, all the yum-yum, delicious treats that the government has been giving people via Obamacare, which is just, of course, a, a, a way to get down, you know, all the bad stuff for you a, a way to to make it seem more palatable you know what is it a, a spoonful of, of sugar is that uh, mary poppins a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down right that was the spoonful of sugar the spoonful of sugar is pre-existing condition coverage and health care until you're 26 and your parents plan and yes i suppose also politically speaking uh, it sweetens the deal to keep the medicaid expansions in place 
You see, this now, now they're going to say they're going to say this is in multiple steps. Uh, they're going to say that this is step one of three or step one of a hundred or whatever it is. But don't you think they realize, especially given the criticisms that were leveled against Obamacare and the day that website went live? And remember, the website crashed, and even even SNL, even left wing, quasi Marxist, progressive loving. SNL writers thought that they had to make fun of the Obamacare crash uh, because the day that the website went live, of course, it it was, you know, a a disaster and a mess. But showing people that you can get things done and do it properly and do it efficiently was supposed to be a part of this whole deal. And now the Republicans are in office. They granted it's it's still early. And I know that. And you have an administration that is completely under siege from the media that makes things more complicated it makes it harder but stretching back to the days of romney we've been hearing about how all we need is republicans to have the power and they will handle this they will do it uh here we are we're at the very beginning of republicans having control across the board the only thing that can really get in the way or rather the only way that they can mess us up is if they get in the way of themselves And it looks like that may be happening at some level. Uh, They're calling this, and when I say they, I mean the media, but even some Republicans are calling this Obamacare light. We were told it would be repeal and replace. This feels a bit more like shift and tinker. You know, this feels a bit like they're just going to nibble around the edges here and there. And where is the promise that we can buy plans from other states, that that all of a sudden interstate commerce, the interstate commerce clause, which has been used for so much terrible federal law, the excuse for innumerable acts of federal overreach. And here we are. All we want is the ability to both buy the health care plan we want and buy it from a provider, wherever that provider might be in this country that's willing to sell it to us at that at that cost point, at that price point. And I don't see that. I don't see that yet. And, and the, I was going through the the text today of the American Health Care Act, uh, 123 pages of it that I downloaded from the House website. And going through the all the different, we're going to take this section and this section and this. It's a lot of legalese. It's a lot of legislative sausage making before your eyes. There are some parts of this that I have to say seem like they're pretty pretty good there's some positive aspects to it but they're doing things like telling you if you're going to buy health insurance and you lose coverage for a while you don't have it for a while you have to pay a 30 percent premium Uh, and so when you re-enter when you re-enter into the or rather when you re-enter the market and then buy something uh, you will pay a, a what is effectively a penalty that goes to the insurance companies well instead of going to the government okay but at least you're not being forced by law to have a plan but when you re-enter the market, you're going to get you're going to get dinged. You're going to get hit pretty hard for not having coverage for a period of time. But there, you can see here. Here's the we can get into the minutia of this a little bit, and and maybe we will later in the hour if if you're curious about some of the details that can be offered up here. Here's the the fundamental, the core underlying problem with all of this. Republicans made it sound like Obamacare was a constitution destroying. Uh, America ruining legislative monstrosity 
And now people can point to what they're doing and say, all right, this is you're keeping some parts of it. So obviously there were some things in Obamacare that members of the House GOP didn't totally hate. There are some parts of what the House GOP is up to that mimics what the Obama administration wanted in the first place. And you even have uh, Jason Chaffetz, and he stumbled upon a truth today, a much more important truth than I think people realize that goes to the heart of all of this. And, I, and he's getting a lot of a lot of heat for this. And this is coming on a day when they're calling it Obamacare light, Ryan care, a lot of conservative opposition to this because it's not what we were promised. That's b- beneath everything else, whatever they say about this. We were not told that it would be a multi-stage, multi-layered, tiered process of keeping some parts of it. We were told that they would make it so this law never existed. And they would come up with a much better new law based on free market principles that would allow for choice and competition and lowered cost and individuals to be in charge. Now, here's the problem with individuals being in charge. Some individuals make bad choices, whether it's buying insurance for their home, their car, whether it's saving money. This is when you start to get it. You see this a little bit when there's an honest discussion of healthcare savings accounts, for example. Okay. Well, are people going to do that if you just because you make it more attractive for them and you incentivize them to do it? Are, are, are enough Americans going to do it that this will really take care of things? Back to Chaffetz for a moment, because this is, I think, what nobody on either side within the Republican Party really wants to talk about. And I've been a skeptic for a while, not a skeptic as to how bad Obamacare is. I think Obamacare took a bad system or a, a problematic system. People liked their health care that had it, but some people didn't have it. But clearly costs were going up. And it took a, a system with problems and exacerbated those problems. And really all it has to show for that uh, would be the high-risk coverage of those with pre-existing conditions for high-risk pools. They're, they're covered. And the expansion of Medicaid in a whole bunch of states. So now those people are covered, although Medicaid is a very bad uh, program in terms of the health outcomes because people uh, because the states don't have enough control over the way that they uh, run Medicaid in their states and so you have doctors that won't take it because the only way that you control costs is by cutting reimbursements to doctors so doctors say I won't take it health health coverage and health care are not the same thing this has always been a central problem with Obamacare I can have a little piece of paper that says oh no I got you covered buddy you're good and then I say okay well you know, I, I got some weird thing on my ear that I need someone to look at. It looks like it's, you know, a, a big problem. I need someone to take a look at this thing. I've got a, I don't know, an, an ear rash or something. And and I want to go see a doctor. Well, if none of the doctors will take this little piece of paper, this little card that says I'm covered, guess what? Doesn't really do me much good, does it? If I have to travel 100 miles or if I have to wait 30 days or whatever it may be, hard to say that I am getting good care. Sure, I am, quote, covered, but I'm not getting good care. And here's the the other central. I just said, so the fundamental problem I see with this is Republicans have so far overpromised on this and under delivered or rather the GOP House members that are pushing this have over. And I know Paul Ryan's out there and he's telling us it's all going to be fine and it's great. Why does it have to be so complicated? I know they'll say, well, Obama, well, Obamacare is complicated. So to deal with a complicated system, you need a complicated response. But That sounds a bit like we're running in circles, doesn't it? I wonder what they're going to say about taxes when we say, well, why aren't you just simplifying dramatically the tax code? Oh, well, there's a lot of 
a lot of nuance now in the tax code. Now that they've been telling us for years, oh, I was hearing about how I could do taxes on my postcard, but I digress. Let's focus. Let's stay on health care for a minute here. Jason Chaffetz saying that low-income Americans, for example, need to make different choices. Can we play this soundbite, please, of uh, health care, buying health care over not, or instead of just getting a new iPhone? Play it. What we want to do is make sure that people have access to the quality health care that they want. This does push it more out of Washington, D.C. and back to the American people. It does align financial incentives, particularly through the health savings accounts. It does uh, limit and cap what we're doing with the states, but gives them more flexibility. With but it. access for lower income Americans doesn't equal coverage. Well, we're getting rid of the individual mandate. We're getting rid of those things that people said that they don't want. And you know what? Americans have choices, and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. They've got to make those decisions themselves. So this in is other the words, problem. for lower-income Americans. For, forget about what, what, uh, what CNN, whatever her name is, is saying now. Chaffetz gets a lot of heat for that, and we, we may, on the other side of this break, maybe I'll play the Obama soundbite that's very similar that people need to make different choices, that they need to be willing to invest more money in their health care than in other than consumer goods. But you see politicians on both sides of the aisle are promising something that I don't think they can deliver. Whether they're explicit about this or not, I don't think they can deliver this, and I have some of the best people imaginable on my show, on this show, and have had them on my shows for years talking to me about healthcare from the conservative side, the the best people from think tanks, those who are advising presidential Republican presidential campaigns on this. They can make it better, sure, and they and they that's obviously good. Improvement is something to be happy about. I don't know how happy we can get though when we look at the improvement versus what the promise was. If the plan here is supposed to be that at the end of this, we just get back to where we were before Obamacare. Sure, the House will be able to deliver that. If the plan here is that we're going to get that the American Health Care Act, uh, which I guess is a pretty uninspiring but straightforward name, um, if it means that if people think that it will mean that perhaps they'll have slightly better options in the individual market, great. But if they believe that it means that we're going to have a system where all Americans, regardless of income level, regardless of tax, uh, whether tax credits or some form of subsidy, which is just it's all really the same thing, isn't it? Without subsidy, without government money, they're going to be able to afford plans with wide doctor networks where you have low co-pays, low deductibles, great health care, and you're not going to have to pay that much for it. I don't think that's true. Because we haven't expanded the provider side of this equation, really with much of any of this. So it's not like there's a whole lot more doctors out there. It's not like there's just this. Uh, people say, well, now, Buck, if they increase competition, here's part of the problem. That people make decisions and then don't want to live with the results of those decisions. This is a very emotionalized issue. People look at this through a different lens than other issues like their home or their car. And that is, even if you didn't have insurance, a lot of us think that it's become a human right for somebody else to pay for your health care. Well, if that is the perspective, we're never going to get there. It's just never going to happen. And I worry that we have rosy views of what's going to come once we do this repeal and replace process. All right. I've really got to go into a break here. 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with American Now. Continue. Stay with me. 
Welcome back. Phones are open 844-900-2825. If you've got experience dealing with an Obamacare exchange or just you've got a healthcare story you want to share with everybody, I think today is a good day for us to talk about that because, well, uh, the House GOP is not uh, not getting people on the right all that excited about their American health care plan. Uh, by the way, very important uh, from Phil Klein of the Washington Examiner. I just saw this here. Uh, he's reiterating the point I was trying to make about Jason Chaffetz. Rather, he's making a similar argument. This is what he writes in Washington Examiner. Uh, Liberals, in other words, have won the central philosophical argument and Republicans are reduced to fighting over the mechanics. And then this is now Jim Garrity in reference to that at National Review writing, the liberal argument is somebody else should pay for your health care. The conservative argument is is that you should pay for your health care. This GOP version of what people are saying now is Obamacare light, it does some good things, but it leaves a lot there. Now, if they're telling us that they leave it, they're leaving a lot there because in time they will restructure the whole thing. I guess they're acting for us to give them some leeway. All right. Maybe. Maybe. I've heard this as well today. I've been reading about this. The steps in the program. Okay, they've got a few steps in the program. So far, what they do with this bill, though, and this is a big deal, right? This is there are people with jobs in D.C. right now, and I mean elected people, because they promise to handle health care. They promise to repeal and replace Obamacare and interstate competition for health insurance plans. No more one size fits all policies. Uh, you'll be able to buy a plan that you like. That's the plan. You can keep it and you know, you, you go with it from there. But. No, now they're seeing the political realities are a little tougher than that. Oh, who could have thought? There's some taxes that are repealed in the GOP bill. Great. There's reductions in spending. Okay, great. There are changes to the regulatory uh, scheme. And they are, as I said, health savings accounts. These are all, these are positive steps. But it doesn't change the fundamental problem, which is that people get their insurance primarily through their employer. Employers pay a vast majority of the cost of that. Employers have a uh, a tax benefit that individuals don't get by providing those plans. And so the, or- the original sin, if you will, of our health care system when it comes to people buying their plans and portability and all the rest of it is untouched by this GOP bill. They want to say the original sin is the individual mandate. No, no, no. We had problems before that. So maybe this returns us to status quo pre-Obamacare and adds a few nice little aspects into it. But it's still going to cost a lot of money. It still leaves a lot of D.C. making decisions about health care. And it does not give us, as far as I can see, unless they're going to come out with something else soon, the amazing free market, you get to choose health care system that we were promised. This could be a big problem, everybody. We've got more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Welcome back, everybody, to the Freedom Hut. We've been talking about health care. I can see a lot of calls rolling in. You want to talk about health care, too. Obviously, it affects all of us in this country. 
But first, we are joined by our guest on this and other issues. We've got Rich Lowry on the line. He is editor of the National Review. He's also a syndicated columnist and a commentator on Fox News. Rich, great to have you. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right. Let, let's just get into it with Obamacare first here. What do you think about this American Health Care Act bill so far? I know it's not done deal. I know there's some phases and steps we've been talking about. But as step one, what are your thoughts? Well, it's landed with uh, a big thud today. The word a week or two ago was that Paul Ryan was going to be Paul Ryan and put out a bill that he thought was substantively the right one and then just let the political chips fall where they may. But this thing is a bit of a substantive mess and seems to reflect Republicans negotiating with themselves before any real, real negotiation begins. So uh, I think at that level it's, uh, it's disappointing. Uh, it would have been better to have something that was more cogent and principled. And then, you know, when you get into the Senate or you get into a Senate House conference, you know, it would inevitably become less perfect from there. But we're starting from a, a place that's not not very not great. And it seems to me like the House GOP, and they've had a lot of time. I don't want to hear about how it's so early, you know, as though they they all just showed up and this thing called Obamacare was dropped in their laps when when uh, Donald Trump you know swore on the Bible and said he's going to be the commander in chief and everything else. They've been talking about this now for years. And they are supposed to be ready to go. I I thought that we were voting for these people, that people that at least have voted for Republicans, believe that they'd be able to more or less, you know, open up the playbook and say execute. Instead, what we have here looks like an inability to even prepare the ground, uh, to to preheat the oven, whichever, you know, whichever way we want to describe it, to get people on the same page. I mean, the American people, because right now the story is, oh, there's dissent among Republicans, just like that chaotic, anarchic White House that can't get its act together. Republicans on the Hill, they're fighting. That's not helpful. Yeah, well, a couple things happened. One is they did have a consensus on a repeal bill that they passed last year and got to President Obama's desk for a rote veto, but it was only a partial repeal bill because they had to do it through the so-called reconciliation process, which means you can't get at the regulations that are really at the heart of the thing. So one, you know, they were all on record supporting that, but when it came to this year and they realized they were firing with real bullets, you had a lot of cold feet over that piece of legislation. Two, and I think this was the right call, but President Trump prodded them to do repeal and replace at the same time. And although there have been various replacement plans, Tom Price had one, Paul Ryan had one, you know, every conservative healthcare wonk worth of salt has his own replacement plan, there was never a consensus on any of them. So now in a real high-pressure environment where, uh, you know, it really matters, they cobbled this thing together in secret, and they want to rush it because they, they want to have, you know, an early success, and they, they realize or their calculation is that every day that passes, it gets harder rather than easier because you lose a little po- political momentum. So I think this shows that the lack of consensus going in and just hammering it out under pressure and the product, again, is just not great. What are some of the key deficiencies at this stage as you see them? I know we've got uh, Donald Trump tweeting out, which to take that for whatever one thinks it is worth, uh, either way, don't worry, getting rid of state lines which will promote competition will be in phase two and three of health care rollout. Um, well, clearly it's not in phase one, so that's a problem. What other problems do you see? 
Well, yeah. First of all, it's not clear what phase two and phase three are, except for in, in yeah. that. Is there a phase two and three, or is that just like in the future in Trump's Yeah. Week? So the, the problem is they, they have to do it through this rec- reconciliation process, which is really meant just for fiscal matters. So things that don't have a direct fiscal effect, like regulations, like you know, letting people buy insurance over state lines, it, uh, arguably you can't get in there. So that's not in there. The, uh, the two core regulations that really make up the heart of Obamacare, so-called guaranteed issue and community rating, are both still in this bill. And that is, is what really creates the need for the individual mandate in Obamacare. They're repealing the individual mandate, as they should, because it's unconstitutional and it's, it's unpopular and it's coercive. But if you, if you have community rating and guaranteed issue, which basically means you cannot have health insurance, wait until you get sick, and then buy health insurance you know, at the same price as everyone else, you need to create some incentive for people to buy health insurance while they're healthy, or the exchanges become economically unsustainable. So instead, they have this, this surcharge where you cannot have insurance and then buy it with a 30% surcharge the first year. Now, if you are a young, healthy person and, God forbid, come down with some you know, you know, leukemia or something that you're going to have to fight for several years and involves you know, very expensive drugs, you can buy health insurance, just have this 30% charge, and then you have a wonderful deal because you have health insurance at the same price as everyone else, even though you didn't play by the rules and you waited till you got sick. So this actually might make the Obamacare exchanges, the individual market, even more unstable than it is today. And, and I have to say, I'm concerned, and, and uh, your, uh, Jim Garrity, who also writes at National Review, was, was sharing some thoughts on Twitter and on The Corner, and I agree, I've been saying this for a while, I worry that the, the perception does not match up with the reality of what healthcare will be even post-Obamacare, even if we repealed and replaced based on the most conservative principles that people have established so far, I think that the same way that everyone kind of knows that the entitlement state in this country as it stands, at least with Medicare and Social Security, is unsustainable, but nobody it, it's not an argument anybody wants to have right now. Maybe it'll come back. That there's a, a growing sense that everyone wants somebody else to pay for their health care. That, that, that this is really, uh, forget about the details of the bill as it stands right now and even some of the deficiencies that might exist after Trump's reported phase two and three rich i worry that people believe that they're going to be able to buy an insurance plan for themselves that is almost entirely subsidized as most health care plans you get from your employer are exactly. that have great doctor networks that have low costs and low deductibles and someone else will pay for it that's yeah. i don't see how that works i think that there's a little well, bit of people uh, a little pie in the sky here yeah you know if we were starting from scratch a rational system wouldn't have the subsidies for employer plans, um, it, because th- what, what Republicans are, are doing now is saying, well, if, if you're subsidizing employer plans and we can't take that away because it would be so disruptive, then is it not fair, is it, you know, it's unfair not to have a subsidy f- for individuals, which is a tax credit. So you end up subsidizing everyone, um, one. And, and two, we have this crazy system where people, they expect insurance to, to pay for a Band-Aid. You know, if you have a scratch on your elbow, insurance should pay for that. If you go for a routine checkup, insurance should pay for that. The whole reason we have insurance is to protect us from catastrophic 
events. People, this, and, is, this is the key point, Rich. I just want to jump in because I think there's a there's a belief, that's what I meant about the $20 copay, that even if we fixed all this, if if individual health care was free market, for a lot of people that would mean, you know, up to the, I don't know what the numbers are, but just the, up to the first $5,000 of medical expenses in any given year. Maybe it's the first 3000 maybe it's the first ten. I don't know. That's coming out of your pocket. Because otherwise, if people just pay for all of your health care or uh, greatly subsidize it, it, it's too expensive. Not everybody can have that. Correct. Um, so th- this is what insurance would be. But we've all, all grown used to um, the system now, which, as you put it, is just someone else paying for your routine health care. And that's a crazy system. Yeah, well, I, I wonder if it's going to be, ref- when people see what the reform really looks like, I do believe that it'll be better than what we've got over Obamacare, which I don't want to put that down because, you know, progress is, is good, uh, improvement is good, but it, this the, the promises that have been made that we're going to have this almost like free market utopia in healthcare, and maybe that's overstating a little bit, but not too much. When you listen to what some of the senators and, Rep- and uh, Republican congressmen have been saying here, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointed folks out there because deductibles are high. You know, insurance is ultimately about risk, and if you take risk out of it, meaning people who are old and sick and people who have pre-existing conditions, none of that matters. Well, now it's just an elaborate system of cross-subsidies between people, and eventually somebody's left, you know, the music stops and you don't have a chair. But that's my, that's my spiel on that for right now. I also want to ask you about, uh, I, I see this here, this is near and dear to my heart, Rich. You are going up into the lion's den. Is this tomorrow night? You're going to my alma mater, Amherst College? You're oh, gonna... I didn't know you're... Uh, oh, what, 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 what's the, uh, the school mascot? It, of... it is unofficially the Lord Jeff, but he was, <laughs> he was a symbol of, of racist patriarchy and the destruction of Native American peoples. So he's not as popular as he used to be. But you're going up there. Uh, are you aware that the politics at Amherst College are not that different than Middlebury, where there have been some issues. <laughs> I'm hoping to fly under the radar screen. Oh, okay. Well, anyone listening who is not a conservative, don't show up and, and picket Rich Lowry at Amherst tomorrow I, night. And, I didn't know you were the product of Amherst, which just, just goes to actually going to a very liberal school is good for conservatives because you, you, you learn to have a thick skin. You learn to be able to defend what you believe. And if you can run through that fire, you, you, nothing's going to stop oh, you. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like the equivalent of conservative fight club. I mean, you know, you're, you're just throwing down all the time. So you, know, you, get, you get used to it. You learn how to take a punch, ideologically speaking, in Amherst. Although these days it's more than ideological, unfortunately. People are getting out of control with all this stuff. Uh, Rich, what's your latest piece this week? We're going to tell people to go. Well, it's actually about Middlebury, um, it, where it, it's just, I, I think the, the root of the problem on campuses now is this idea that speech is a physical threat to people. So kind of the defensive mechanism there is you have to go to a safe space, you have to flee spe- speech. But uh, unfortunately, there's also this kind of offensive idea that you get to shout down or actually physically attack uh, a speaker. Because if he says things that are, that are unwelcome or discomforting to you, that's a physical assault on you. So you're justified, as happened in Middlebury last week, pulling the hair of a faculty member, banging on the, the car of a guest speaker, trying to you know, obstruct the car from going anywhere, and generally cha- literally chasing him out of town. Yeah, they, they hurt the female professor who was escorting Charles Murray out who was at the event in part to refute what he said. <laughs> so I'm like, exactly. you're, you're not even safe if you're on the crazy team. Yeah, the, these, these poor students who uh, are involved in this American Enterprise Institute chapter at Middlebury who invited Charles Murray, who's at the American Enterprise Institute, their invitation for this event was called literally an invitation to argue. And how naive that they actually thought, you know, <laughs> these, these uh, uh, so-called adults 
would be willing to actually argue reasonably and rationally over things they might disagree yeah. about. And it's profoundly depressing. One of the grosser things I've seen, and there's a lot to choose from with a major newspaper recently, was uh, I think it was in the Washington Post. They referred to Charles Murray in just the description of this event as someone, well, described by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a white supremacist. Right. Oh. Yeah, and I think the oh. AP said in its lead, considered, you know, a white, su- white supremacist. <laughs> what does that mean? Considered yeah. by whom? Not by any rational human being. But anyway, Rich, we got to leave it there. Rich is the editor of National Review, everybody. Check out his latest, his columns. And uh, if you're a conservative and you're in the Amherst area tomorrow night, go check it out. And Rich, Antonio's Pizza, you'll thank me later. Check it out. Thanks so much, Buck. All I'll right, give Amherst good. your regards. Absolutely. Please do. All right, everybody, we'll be back right after the break. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We're talking health care. Got a lot of you who want to talk about it, so let's do it. 844-900-2825 on the lines. Uh, we have here, what is this? We have Dan in North Carolina on WPTI. Go, Dan. What's up? Well, thank you for taking my call, Buck. Thank you. Yeah, you hit it earlier in your program. It's a big, big deal, <laughs> And trying to figure this all out is going to be tough for anybody. And it's a shame President Trump tried to replace it or is trying to replace it. I understand why and all, and we all understand the reasons why. But the big thing is you're not going to get all your – you won't get all the apples in the same cart no matter what we do. There's there's no way we can please everybody with health care. And, and – just like with the insurance lobby, I'm sure they've been working double overtime since November 9th. And between the insurance lobby and the government, uh, you know, it's 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 a boy. It's we're we're really having a tough time with it, and we all know why. And I just my personal experience with it, Ben, is that as long as I was working, I had good health coverage, and that's what insurance was always described with, to me, especially through medical insurance, was the bigger the group the better the rates and the better the care. And and that way it gets spread out among everybody. You so. know, I, I went from, uh, Dan, I went from being a federal government employee to briefly being a, a local municipal government employee. And that, that, let me tell you, that was an education in the differences that you could see between one plan and another. You know, I was, look, I was, it was my first job out of college was a CIA. I was used to, you know, you go in, Go and whatever doctor I wanted to see was like, oh, right this way, sir. You know, and by the way, this is what you know, Congress and they all have this awesome federal health care, right? They have the you know whether it was federal Blue Cross Blue Shield or what, what they've got a big provider, a great gold plated plan. And anyone you want to see, you go see. You pay fifteen or twenty bucks maybe for the visit. You know that's it. Uh, you leave that system and you go to as you pointed out something that's smaller, has has less money, less clout. And now, all of a sudden, you find yourself, none of the doctors you want to see will take it. And, you know, you get a prescription, you think it's a pretty normal prescription, and instead of paying, you know, 10 or 20 bucks, you're paying 300 or $500. I mean, th- this is normal. This is what happens to people. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, I, in 99, I was working as a Teamster driver for a trucking company, knocking off 100000 a year. My wife got diagnosed with MS, and... There wasn't anything about a pre-existing condition ever said. She she immediately, I mean, she went right on the plan. Well, she was already on the plan, but I never got any letters trying to kick her off or anything like that. And then after researching it, there was a federal law that said if you belong to a group plan and someone come up with a catastrophic illness or injury, they had to cover it, just like with the, the emergency room bill and, you know, laws that have been in place. So 
we had some good things in place long before Obamacare, but now it's gone so far and so far the other way. I'm, I'm yeah. Well, it's about reforming the individual market, and that's really the bellwether because that takes so much stress off people. And also, thank you, uh, Dan, for calling from North Carolina, Shields High. You know, my my generation. I'm a I refer to as a graybeard millennial. I'm 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 about as old as you can be and still technically qualify for for millennial status. Um, but there's so many that are my age and lower who are moving around to different jobs and you leave, you lose one plan, you get another plan, maybe you're in between plans for a while, and it's just nonsense. You know, it, it, this shouldn't be the way that it is. That shouldn't be, oh, well, do I need to get Cobra and all this other junk that comes up. Uh, Barry in Virginia on WPTI. What's up, Barry? Hey, how are you? Thank I'm good, sir. Thank you. So I'm one of those guys that lost uh, the opportunity to buy affordable health care. My health care doubled. I actually went from my wife and I on the same plan. I'm 60 years old. I run a power equipment store in Martinsville and Henry County. And uh, it went from $1,369 to $1,900 a month. That was a month. And I actually just got to where I couldn't hardly afford to pay it. So it's it's doubled. And a six thousand dollar deductible and also I had some other issues where the co pays went up and I'm sitting here still waiting on something good. Yeah, Barry, I hear you. It's a mess, and I, I and I feel the same thing. It keeps getting more expensive, keeps getting, it keeps getting worse. Everything else, thank you, Barry, for calling in. Sorry to hear about the trouble you're having, but I appreciate you sharing it with all of us. You know, everything else gets cheaper. I mean, I, I've got an iPhone now that can pretty much run my life, which, you know, that's a whole separate story. Uh, but y- you carry all this computing power in your pocket. That's getting cheaper all the time. But, you know, the same MRI you've been getting since the 70s, oh, that's got to cost like 3000 bucks out of pocket. More coming up. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut. So I've mentioned before that I'm a former CIA officer, and so that bears on some of my thinking certainly about uh, foreign policy issues, but also it's an experience that can be uh, valuable in deciphering what's going on in the news cycle. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions. In fact, uh, I did a, a couple of interviews earlier today and, and have been talking mostly about the wiretapping allegations that Donald Trump uh, put out there against uh, well, the Obama administration, but he did specifically cite o- Obama himself. I think I think we are allowed to give Trump the benefit of the doubt there that he meant the Obama administration and not necessarily Obama personally, although maybe not. I, I don't know. And I, I have my concerns that now you have the commander in chief saying that he will push for an investigation of this via Congress when it would seem to me that he should be able to get an answer from the FBI, the DOJ, or any other entity that he uh, wishes to ask a question to. Um, so as follow-up to that, yesterday I, I'm unconvinced right now that the administration's position on this is going to be uh, particularly, well, I'm not sure this will work out well for them in terms of the way the media is going to cover this, of course, but also I don't think they're going to get any answers 
uh, via Congress, because any answer that the Congress could get, you would assume that the president should be able to get himself. They are resisting requests for a special prosecutor, which the Democrats, of course, really want, because, as you know, a special prosecutor now is uh, is all is already an admission of something in many people's minds. Right. You need to get the special prosecutor in place. Because once you do that, well, now you can talk about, oh, there's a, spe- well, there's a special, there's a serious issue, there's a special prosecutor on this. Are you aware of the special prosecutor, sir, who is gathering documents? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're aware of that, for sure. Um, and look at the havoc that was, uh, the havoc that was created by the special prosecutor in the plame leak case from uh, the Bush administration. What was his name? Fitzgerald, running around, interviewing people, and... Oh, what a what a blow for democracy was struck by the charges of perjury and obstruction against Scooter Libyan. What a what a preposterous miscarriage of justice that was. Bush uh, commuted his sentence, should have pardoned him. Uh, but President Bush, a good man, I think, had been very much beaten down by the end of his presidency and just didn't. I, I believe Cheney, who came out publicly on this one, I believe he's right. Bush just didn't want to take the heat. He just had enough. Uh, all of the uh, all of the psychological uh, and emotional toll of being the commander in chief through two wars and and most of his presidency uh, he just didn't have it anymore he just didn't didn't want to fight didn't want to deal with it and I, I think that was a mistake I think that was wrong but I I understand we all have look we all have our breaking point we all have our weaknesses uh, but the administration says that they want to get answers on this they're going to push for some means of uh, investigation via the Congress of wiretapping, which there's only there's really only two options. This is a follow up to yesterday's conversation, but either press reports that were accepted as true were inaccurate, and therefore I think you could claim fake news or at least false news. I like to say false news because fake news people say is when you create something entirely for the purpose of misleading and uh, and lying. Um, that's what fake news is. False news is when you put something out there that's completely inaccurate, but maybe you did it with good intentions. I, I, I say this false news thing. I don't hear anyone else saying it, but that's it's, it's a variation on fake news or a another way of describing a news story where, you know, for example, if I run a story and my central source turns out to be a complete fabrication and I have to issue a retraction, I may have in good faith published that story. Um, even if I went through some of the journalistic checks, but if I have to retract the centerpiece of it and say, well, the, <laughs> without this guy or the girl or whoever's my source, there's no story. That's false news, right? We could all agree on that. Maybe my intent wasn't bad, but the outcome is the same. So either those news stories that came out about surveillance of Trump associates were false news. Maybe they were even fake news, but that's I can't prove that, right? I can't prove that the New York Times would run stories like that. But they serve the purpose at the time of adding to this narrative for which there's still zero evidence. And I await the evidence, not the conjecture, not the insinuation, not the, you know, just sort of dancing around the subject. And no, no, I await uh, somebody telling me where there's a bit of hard evidence to look at that can tell us all that there was something really amiss here, that Trump uh, did something egregious or some one of his top advisors, the, the campaign in some capacity, did something egregiously wrong. And also, was it criminal or not, which would weigh in here, too. If the Russians did what they did and they just l- l- told Trump that we've got a plan in, w- in the works, don't worry about it, but uh, we're going to try to help you out. 
Whether Trump says, you know, okay, or whether he says, no, don't do that, doesn't really matter, does it? He hasn't broken any law unless he was part of that effort, which would just be crazy, by the way. This wasn't even a good way to try to throw the election. That's what I find so interesting about the the theory. This isn't this isn't even an effective means of of helping Trump win. I, I don't I mean, I know that this is something you can never prove in uh, in hindsight, but I don't think that it was enough on its own to have any sway. I, I, I just don't believe it. And I don't think anybody could prove otherwise. OK, so that's my follow up to some of our discussion yesterday. Either the news that they put out there was false news um, or there's something that is true here. Uh, or there was some surveillance, though. And if there was, we, we should know about that. If the opposition party was, uh, whether it was under a criminal wiretap or something, uh, the Trump administration wants to find out. We're just trying to get at the facts here, everybody. But keep in mind that when, the, when it was damaging to Trump, the stories were unquestioned. And now that it looks like some aspect of those stories could uh, have a boomerang effect and hurt the previous administration... Now we're told, oh well, the, the, those you can't just you can't just take those stories to the you can't take that to the bank. Oh, well, that's kind of new, isn't it? Speaking of stories, you can't take the bank, and let let me make sure that I I preface this properly, lest any of my uh, former friends or colleagues from from Langley happen to be listening, which is is definitely the case a lot of the time, and has been the case in the past. I don't know anything about, I don't have any inside knowledge or any classified insight. And if I did, I certainly wouldn't offer it and I wouldn't admit it uh, about anything that's been released in the last 24 hours uh, by WikiLeaks. I don't, I, I don't know anything about this uh, alleged cyber center. I, I, I got nothing on any of that uh, from the class. And I don't know if these documents are real or not. And I can neither confirm nor deny. I really can't confirm. I don't know anything about them. All I know is the media, the press descriptions of them. And I have a few thoughts on that that I want to share with you. First of all, uh, WikiLeaks, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little annoyed here because I think WikiLeaks has gotten far too much play and credibility from some on the right recently. And look, people are allowed to make their own judgments and their own distinctions about whether they believe a, a source for information. And I'm not just talking about what this... This alleged, uh, these trove, this is the New York Times headline, trove of alleged CIA hacking documents. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about before that, that I had some conservatives, some of whom I really like and respect a lot, seem to give all this credibility to WikiLeaks, which we all understand, right? Sometimes your your interest can be aligned with very bad people. That's a real thing that can happen. Uh, This is where somebody goes, yes, Buck, like we fought with the Soviets against the Nazis, right? Sometimes that does happen. And perhaps if you were uh, viewing the releases from WikiLeaks that hurt Hillary Clinton, you're willing to say, well, you know, I don't think it hurt very much. But nonetheless, I think a lot of people on the right for a while were much more willing to turn a blind eye to what WikiLeaks has done in the past with, for example, the Chelsea Manning releases. That there was no there was no whistleblowing there. I mean, releasing classified documents from the U.S. military and from diplomatic channels just so everybody can see them just because that's not whistleblowing. That's betraying your country. That's committing an act of, of espionage and, and willfully doing it many, many, many times over. And WikiLeaks was a part of that. WikiLeaks somehow never has very interesting transparency documents to show us about, well, certainly not the Russians. 
a kleptocracy run by Vladimir Putin. Certainly not. I, I haven't seen anything about the Chinese. I haven't seen anything really about anybody other than America and maybe some European countries. That's the, that, Those always seem to be the targets of WikiLeaks. You have to ask the question, so of all the tyrannies, of all the uh, statist regimes in the world, this transparency organization seems to want to pick on the country that, while imperfect, has a near obsession, with at least the public has a near obsession, with achieving transparency for its voters and for its uh, citizens, its people. So I, I do think that you have to look at the realities of the target set that WikiLeaks has chosen in the past and say that this is an organization with an agenda. Now, I'm sure if Julian Assange were able to get on line with us right now, which he is not, uh, he would say that they've never, you know, that in the past he would take the claim. They've never released anything that's fake. Well, all I can say about this latest release is that, again, I don't know if any, and, and you know what, I'm not even going to look at the documents. Because based on what the media is saying they are, I don't even want to, and I know they're out there, but I don't want to know. I, I don't want to, I don't want to taint my ability to analyze and speak to all of you by perhaps having crossover with something that shouldn't be out there, even if it is out there. I don't, I don't want to have that to be part of my discussion. But if it is what they say it is, and certainly the New York Times is reporting on it and seems to be, the New York Times is giving it a good amount of credence and credibility. What purpose would it serve? Radical transparency that undermines, that would undermine the United States is not something that I think my fellow Americans should be excited about. When you look at what they're saying they are doing here, which would be exposing uh, very sensitive programs or very sensitive tools to get into different programs. Why is now this is out there for if they are real documents, it's out there. For, and they've said this, all this code, thousands of pages of documents, and it's on the Internet. Anybody can can read through them. This is helpful. How? How does this make Americans, how does it make anybody freer or better off? No, I would think that this is a cyber. If these documents are true, I would think that we could view these as a cyber catastrophe. And it's so utterly reckless to put this kind of information out there for anyone to see. They all, I know, will take the position of, oh, well, again, if this stuff is ever authenticated, and there's so much of it, they've even said they haven't. This is from Weekly. They've said we haven't even authenticated all of it. We don't know. And the timing of this, as some have pointed out, about how this could tie into surveillance and the surveillance state and the deep state, the timing of this is interesting, I would say. Uh, that they release this now. Um, but this is the kind of information, again, without getting into the details about it, without confirming or denying any of it, and without uh, having any prior knowledge from my time in government of how a alleged cyber center and its tools functions. I, I did Middle East counterinsurgency, basically helping out helping out U.S. mill in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's, that's my skill set. I was not doing any of this other stuff that they're writing about whether it's true or not in these documents but how could this help anybody other than enemies of the united states other than rogue elements in uh, evil regimes around the world or the, or the regimes themselves than hackers who want to use this now to target individual citizens for criminal profit I mean, how could this help anybody um 
And I just don't understand why there's been, and I, I have to say, there have been some who've been very friendly to WikiLeaks recently. On the right, conservatives who I know love this country, and I, I, I just, for me, I, I don't get it. Their ties to uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange's ties to Russian intelligence are longstanding, in the press, written about. And why would you trust this group that only ever manages to find fault by exposing U.S. secrets in the past and whatever this is that they've done the last 24 hours? Um, And it it could be, we'll see. Uh, We're still waiting for the authentication to come out. And maybe, maybe they'll never have a public authentication of any of this. I don't know. But also, at least conceivably, a damage assessment. I mean, WikiLeaks has done a lot of damage to U.S. national security in the past. Is this another instance of that? Well, it depends on whether this stuff is real or not. But it uh, it's very disheartening. All right, um, 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with America Now has a lot more in the tank. So stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut, everybody. Richard in West Virginia, WBUV. What is up, sir? Well, I don't know where WBUV is. Where's that? Oh, I thought that was your radio station. We might have gotten that one wrong. Pardon me, sir. Go ahead. My radio station is WWVA. Oh, WWVA. <laughs> Pardon me. Pardon me. WWVA. My my apologies and, and warm thanks for carrying the show. So you were saying, sir. Well, I want to say I want to talk about health care, but uh, I just want to say if there's nothing else I ever learned from your show, I heard you say that CIA are not agents or officers. So I learned something there. Uh, all these years, I thought they were called agents. Yeah, no, they're actually at CIA office. Anyone who tells you they were a CIA agent is probably either lying or just doesn't know what they're talking about. That's what I've heard forever until I listened to your show and I heard yeah. you say they're Because you got a bona fide CIA officer, former CIA officer, talking to you now. All right, that's a good thing. And the one thing you played, that one song you played, one of my favorite songs from the show first started, uh, Spoonful of Sugar. A spoon oh, oh, yeah. I made a Mary Poppins reference, which that's an unusual one for me. But it's, uh, you know, you got to be on your toes in the Freedom Hunt. Any, anything can fly your way. I love that song. I mean, it's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> so, Richard, you want to talk to us about health care? We could do, we could do, move, on Friday, we're going to do Action Movie Quote Friday. So maybe there's a good time to tell you all about that. That's where anyone who's listening can call in and on the spot throw an Action Movie Quote at me and we'll see if I get the movie. It's a fun little game we do. It uh, brings us back to the greatest action movies of the 80s, like Die Hard and Terminator and Commando and all the rest of them. But, Richard, what do you want to say about health care? And I think it was uh, 1999, I quit my job. And they were talking about all that COVID. And since it's been so long ago, I can't remember what it was. But all I know is uh, I think it goes like six months that you could be on your employer's insurance and then you have to pay for it your own. It was costing me $500 a month. For, uh, now, I actually was on disability, so it cost me almost all my disability to pay for, pay for that health care uh, because of this so-called pre-existing condition. And I still have it. It's called sleep apnea, and I have, uh, they call that a pre-existing condition. And I don't know. I mean, it was just, uh, it was bad news. took almost everything I had to pay for it. I didn't want to pay for it. I actually did quit paying for it after a while because it just cost too much. And I was lucky that I didn't have the kind of problems that I do now because if I did, 
uh, I've really been in, in shape, shape of the course. So, you, so but you've been through it then, dealing with health care providers and being on different plans, I assume, and trying to figure out what's going to pay for what and who's got to pay for what and all the rest of it. No, it's Richard, it's really it's really complicated. Thank you for calling in from uh, West Virginia. I appreciate that. Um, look, I, I've I've been I, I've been somebody who's had good health care, uh, meaning a good plan. I've been somebody who's had a really in my opinion, substandard plan. And I've also been an adult with a no plan. Uh, and you, you, it's a, it's very interesting when you have to go through the, uh, the healthcare system and all of a sudden when you don't have health, when you don't have a plan at all, you really pay attention to costs and what you're billed. And now all of a sudden the notion of going in to see a doctor, cause you have strep throat or something and you just want them to write you a prescription for a, you know, a Z pack or whatever. And, you know, here in New York City, I don't know, it depends on wherever you are, but, you know, they'll charge you $500 for a five-minute visit. And you're like, well, what is that all about? How, how, how can that be what this costs? People with a health care plan, they're charging the insurer 200 and you're picking up 20 bucks of that maybe, and maybe then they reduce it to 150 But if I just walk in there for five minutes and I just want to write a check or pull out a credit card, it costs me 500 Why is that? Anyway, this is the the machinery of this and it's all meant to confuse and obfuscate and ultimately try to do the impossible which is what i was getting to before which is everybody wants someone else to pay for their care and when you pay for your own care you have a very different view of our entire healthcare system we're gonna talk immigration in just a minute stay with me the things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone that's that's why that's why he's here Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Let's talk about immigration, everybody. Still a very important issue the Trump administration is tackling in uh, new ways this week with the executive order that has been revised. Uh, We've got to talk about that as well as some other issues of immigration that have come up and that are going to be Places of fierce policy dispute in the days, weeks, and months ahead. We're joined by Mark Krikorian. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. Mark, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk first about the uh, new travel the new travel ban. Now, the criticisms, Mark, are that this is, uh, first of all, I'm hearing people say, well, he said it needed to be speedy. Well, now he's giving two weeks to allow for the bureaucracy to handle it. And I want to say, well, first of all, it was supposed to be speedy, and then the courts over, you know, the courts put a stay on it, so it doesn't really matter the speed at which he was doing it because the courts right. overruled him. Yep. Um, and then also, well, yeah, so now that's gone. The, the element of surprise is certainly gone, and yep. he has right. two weeks to get this in place, but they're saying it doesn't include Iraq. How can you not include a country that's part of the you know, the, the two countries most affected by the Islamic State? You know, everyone's now just attacking this on the... Uh, efficacy, efficacy side of things, saying it's not going to work as advertised. What say you? Well, I mean, the key thing here is that it's not the policy. It's just an initial step of, of you know, sort of giving our people a breather and some space so they can develop uh, the, uh, explore what vetting policies are necessary and implement those policies. So it's only three months that people from these now six terrorist-ridden countries are um, stopped from entering, and only 120 days, so four months, for refugee admissions to be paused until new procedures are developed. So really, 
honestly, there's a lot of melodrama about this thing, and it's not really um, as earth-shaking or monumental a matter as the ACLU and the rest of these jokers think it is. Yeah, the ACLU has said, I, I read their press release that said it was a uh, a, a, a just a new Muslim ban, editorial in the New York Times saying that this is, and this is from the editorial board, so it's not just some r- random dude or dudette that they're publishing here. It's the editorial board of the New York Times that calls it Muslim ban light. What they're effectively saying, right, is that any any restriction on immigration uh, for a temporary period of time based on a country having ties to jihadist terrorism is inherently anti-Muslim, right? So there's no, he could make this two countries and they'd still say it's a Muslim ban. Yeah, exactly. That's what they seem to be saying, because even though this only covers maybe 10% of the world's Muslim population, it's obviously not a Muslim ban. The uh, new version of the order is actually better at explaining what it is they're doing. That was something the first order just didn't do a very good job of. Because I think the folks in the White House, I mean, look, they were in a hurry. They said, look, the president has the authority to do this. Let's just do it. Rather than, and I think they forgot that basically you always need to keep explaining and persuading what you're doing. And so they did a much better job in this here. But look, the ACLU and these guys are still going to call this a Muslim ban. But, you know, are there other countries that are either complete, you know, failed states where terrorists rule? large part of the country, or where the governments themselves are state sponsors of terror. I mean, that's what these countries are. It's not like Paraguay fits that description, or Nepal, or Finland. It's these countries, frankly, you know, Islam is going through a tumultuous, violent period, and we can't just pretend that's not happening, because we don't want to make somebody, you know, hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah, I, I read it. I think it was also a New York Times editorial, not by the editorial board. Where the Why case do you was, read these editorials, Buck? I mean, yeah, I know. Times I need to stop reading so much New York Times and Washington Post. It's really a form of, of, of abuse, uh, abusing myself. It's bad. But uh, I checked the one out, and they said, well, they're not including uh, countries that have long-standing terrorism like Colombia and the FARC. And I'm saying, you know, are we really going to we're going to make that case now that countries that have domestic narco-terrorist insurgencies that are trying to seize territory there that haven't killed a U.S. citizen at least in decades. I, you know, it's been a long time. We're, we're, we're going to include them on the ban, too. You know, this is, you know, maybe Northern Ireland should be on there just because yeah, this is where sure, the yeah. argument tends to go. But anyway, well, I, 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 name? I, uh, Serbia. Remember the guy who killed uh, the Archduke Ferdinand 100 years ago? He was Serbian, so we should include them, too, maybe. Yeah, no, it's it, it's just the argument devolves into nonsense, but it really does turn into a big game of virtue signaling for the left and how much they love immigrants. With that in mind, I wanted to move us to a very interesting piece that I saw in uh, one of the UK papers. I think it was the uh, tabloid, the Daily Mail, but they actually do some pretty interesting reporting sometimes if you can get past all the Kim Kardashian photos. And which, you know, there's that. But you know, I, I got to do what I got to do. I mean, I'm, I'm doing research. And they talk about uh, the refugees in this country that are afraid that they're not going to be able to stay, I think, or that they're not welcome, who are crossing over the northern border. And then they're then they're arrested and processed by Canadians. Prime Minister Trudeau has said that anybody that's not welcome here will be welcome there. Is that just posturing or do you think he's going to stick to that? Um, my sense is, given his politics, he's probably going to stick to that, because understand what that issue is. That's not people who have refugee status or people who have you won asylum. Those are just illegal aliens who don't think that they will be successful in getting asylum here, because, frankly, they're just making it up. 
Um, and so they figure Canada's a soft touch. And there's an interesting twist here with Canada. We actually have an agreement with them so that any person who goes to a port of entry from Canada here or from here to Canada who says, hi, I want asylum, is turned away because the agreement between us is, look, that person should have applied for asylum in the other country. We're not taking them in. But what Canada does is if you sneak across the border and then show up and, talk and present yourself to a Border Patrol person, uh, in Canada, actually, it's the Mounties that are the Border Patrol, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So the point is, if you get past the border, not the border crossing, but you just cross somewhere in the woods, then they'll consider your asylum request. And they're a much softer touch than we are. They give asylum to people that really, really, really don't deserve it. I was going to say, so that, how does it work in Canada? Because they have a point. If you're a, if you're a businessman in Hong Kong and you want Canadian citizenship, my understanding is they evaluate you based on you know what you'll bring to the economy, your educational background, your, your resources, all this, all this stuff, and what your profession is. But if you just show up and say you're a refugee, people are attacking you at home, and your life is in danger, they're much more likely to take you. I mean, how, how does oh, it yeah, actually work? Absolutely. I mean, the what you described, the first person, the guy from Hong Kong or from anywhere else, that's applying for regular immigration status. So you go on the website; they actually have it. Anybody can go check out their website. And you take a little, you know, you put in, do you know English or French? How, what level of education do you have? That sort of thing. And they'll tell you, look, your score is X, and it's not high enough to get into Canada this year. That kind of thing. But that's for regular immigration. If you're, you know, some taxi driver from Sudan who uh, came in on a tourist visa to New York and just never left, um, you're, you're, you're not going to be passing any point system test to get a green card or their equivalent of a green card in Canada. So what you do is you sneak in and you say, hi, I'm here now, and you're obliged by the refugee convention to consider my asylum application. And, uh, you know, I'm oppressed and blah, blah, blah. And the Canadians, frankly, just approve a lot more of those than we do. And what is, how many uh, refugees does Canada take in year in and year out? We've got the Trump number now is, is 50,000, again, they said, which is half what the refugees were supposed to be under, under the Obama uh, guidance or Obama policy in the last year of his administration, so they've, they've cut it back to 50,000. Uh, how, how many refugees do the Canadians take? Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't have the number at, my, at hand, but on both refugees and regular immigrants, Canada actually takes per person, you know, proportion to their population quite a bit more than we do, actually, because they have about a tenth of our population, but they take way more than one-tenth of the number of immigrants or refugees have they have they started to see i mean i know that you know we're we're really most concerned about the american immigration system but i know everyone looks at what's going on in europe and that that has changed the whole conversation with the mass muslim migration that has occurred or migration from the muslim world uh into predominantly germany but also other countries uh, and, and northern european countries people look at that and say okay well that's having some interesting political and social ramifications over there uh, are our brothers uh, and sisters up north in Canada, are, are they having some changes of heart, second thoughts, uh, any issues about the number of refugees or overall immigrants even they've been taking in? They are starting to get some angst over there because of all the people that are coming over from New York State and what have you into Canada. In other words, the illegal immigrants here who are going into crossing the border into Canada. And the reason it really hasn't been all that sharp in Canada before is that unlike the United States or Europe, you can't walk to Canada from the third world. I mean, basically, their border patrol is the United States. 
you I mean you got to cross through a thousand miles of the United States to get to Canada, or you have to you know walk across the ice or somehow and get up there. And so they're actually kind of insulated and protected from all of this. And only now that all these illegal immigrants are more illegal immigrants are crossing from the United States into Canada are they starting to get a little nervous about this? Why doesn't Trudeau just offer up? I mean, here, here's a helpful idea. He's a big progressive. He says that he's got an o- open arms to refugees. It worked wonders for Merkel, everybody, in Germany. But side note, uh, why, why, doesn't, why doesn't he also just say, you know, if there's any concerns for those with, with illegal status in America, just come to Canada? It, yeah, it seems mean, like an easy and obvious answer from him. I mean, it'd be great. I, I I would encourage him to do that. I don't. Uh, I think even he's not quite that crazy. Actually, having seen what happened to Angela Merkel, but wouldn't that be quite a test? It'd be an interesting test of all the things we're told in this country about how uh, you know I- immigrants are. You know, they say immigrants. We're talking about Ill- illegal immigrants, which they now just fold into immigrants. But we're led to believe illegal immigrants even are our strength, and they're an, an essential part of our diversity, and they they make all these benefits to the economy, and they never commit crimes. A very very few of them, less than the native born Americans. Of, of all different backgrounds and ethnicities do. We're told this all the time. I, I want to know. I feel like Trump has got a, he's got a great issue here. You should just tell Trudeau, hey, Canada, you want to be a, a wonderful partner and help us out? You're so progressive and great. Take all, of our, take all of our illegals, and they will make your economy fantastic, and they'll do the jobs Canadians won't do. How about that? I wonder what the answer would be. Yeah, well, the answer would be we'll get back to you on that one. Um, yeah, you're pretty sure, though, when push comes to shove, they wouldn't do that, even though no. they right now take in a lot of uh, refugees. No, because their immigration flow, generally speaking, other than the refugees, is actually significantly more skilled and educated than um, ours is. And so it's caused, it's caused problems, but it's not the same level of problems. It's not the same kind of you know, welfare issues and all that sort of thing. It's just because you can't walk there from the third world. That's basically what it boils down to. And if we were... You know, I mean, nobody's, they're just not going to go for the idea of, you know, any illegal immigrant who's worried about deportation should just walk across the North, Car- North Dakota border and we'll take you. I'd be, you know, it'd be a great idea. I'm all for it. But even Trudeau isn't that dumb. One more for you, Mark, and uh, we're, cause just because we're running out of time, I always enjoy talking about all these immigration issues. Uh, the raids, CNBC here reporting on raids having a chilling effect as fear keeps customers away from small stores. Are these raids in excess of what we've seen in the past? Are these raids different, or is this just more fear-mongering, and we're just going to see an endless parade of New York Times, Washington Post, and other stories about teary-eyed children being separated from their illegal parents and all this? I mean, is this just, has something changed, or is this propaganda? It's been a change to some degree, but it's not been really a radical change. Um, The, uh, you know, the raids that got all this attention, this was a couple of weeks ago, they arrested like close to 700 uh, illegal immigrants. And most of them, like three quarters of them, were people they had on a list who have, were either criminals or they deported and came back or whatever it is. There was, there was some good reason to go after them. The other quarter were just illegal immigrants they encountered. You know, they go into somebody's house. He's a previously deported felon, and they find two other illegal immigrants there. They take them into custody, too. That's the part that's different. Under Obama, they did, in fact, I mean, if you were a murderer or something and got out uh, and they didn't get you before you were released, they would, in fact, go and get you. It's just the thing is that when they find the other two illegal immigrants sitting with you in your, in your living room, and if they weren't murderers, under Obama, the immigration agents were required to let them go. They were prohibited from taking those people into custody, even though they knew they were illegal. That's what's changed, and that's one of the things, really, that's getting all these squeals of outrage. 
Mark Corn is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, Mark, great to have you. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. 844-900-2825 on those phone lines. You want to talk about immigration, health care, Obama, Trump, all kinds of fun stuff. we got lots of stories today. We'll be back right after the break. Welcome back to Buck Sexton with America Now. Thanks for being here. Um, also, please do consider subscribing to the show. You can do so um, on iTunes by typing in Buck Sexton with America Now. You click subscribe on your iTunes and you'll download the show every day. It'll be waiting for you, all of it, and you can listen to it whenever you like, especially if you missed a little piece of it or you wanted to hear a part of it back again. A great way to do that. And also you can share it with friends. We're on the iHeart radio app as well if you don't have us in your whatever area you happen to be when you want to listen to the show you can always listen via um iheart radio so uh i i have to say you know this is something that i saw this this little headline not a big story but uh, of interest to me um you have a, a gym i'm trying to make sure that i get the uh where was this this was in Politics off the TV and out of the gym. This was in uh, Lackawanna County, which I... uh, Lackawanna. Where's Lackawanna? No? You guys get nothing for me on this one? Uh, The the Manhattan guy over here is not familiar with Lackawanna. Sorry about that, guys. Um, But anyway, I can Google it while we're on air, but then I forget what I'm talking about. So there's this place, this magical place, and it's Lackawanna County. If you're listening from there. Oh, no, it's the Greater Scranton. So, okay, that's that's got to be Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, it's Pennsylvania. All right, I figured this out. My, I put on my Freedom Hunt detective hat here. And they, they've been saying, or there's been fights over at the YMCA there. Um, people who don't want the TVs in the gym to have politics on. I'm always amazed. I go to the gym here in New York City. And there must be, there must be, I don't know, 50 to 100 TVs up on the screen. Never do I see Fox News. I've never seen it in the gym here in New York City. It's always MSNBC or CNN. And it's sometimes also CNBC, I guess, for the market watcher types. But I just think it's so interesting that that people would want to watch talking heads that they can't even hear. Because a, you know, a lot of people are working out in the primetime hours. I mean... This is why radio, obviously, everybody, is such a great medium. You could listen to radio and get the full experience on the treadmill or wherever you are, let me say. But watching these, because they don't have the TVs on, um, and so you can only read the, what is it, the closed caption? Way better to listen to radio from like 6 to 9 Eastern, for example. It's a way better move. But people have been fighting at this greater Scranton area. I've learned something today, Lackawanna County. Uh, Greater Scranton area, YMCA. Over what gets to go uh, on the which twenty four hour cable news channel gets to go up? Uh, I'm sure this, this is just another manifestation of the the Trump wars that are out there in our day to day lives of people who hate Trump and people who like Trump, and everything now becomes a referendum on Trump. Even when you are on the elliptical or perhaps the stair climber or one of those other things that looks like a stair climber that's not really but you're kind of making motions like you're on stairs but you're also moving your hands whatever Uh, what they watch on the tvs now in the gym has become politicized and political nothing is sacred anymore folks i always thought 
can we just skip all this and just have loops of, of sports on the TVs in the gym? Wouldn't that be better for or all involved? But you know, I don't, I don't get to make those decisions because you know what? Even when it comes to the gym, I'm opposed to central planning. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. A day without a woman. That is what they are calling it. It it sounds to me more like maybe an an album from the 90s that Alanis Morissette might have put out. It's like a day without a woman. Uh, You know, sort of Lilith Fair. Isn't that the all-female, right? All-female bands at Lilith Fair, I think. Wasn't that a thing that they... Yeah, that's a thing they used to do. I don't know if they still do it. Lots of of that uh, stuff going on. Uh, I... Yeah, uh, let's talk about this for a second here. So th- this is a, a follow-on. For those of you who don't know, A Day Without a Woman. It's a follow-on to the Women's March that happened in D.C. a few weeks ago, which had a, a whole collection of women holding up signs that were, as you probably saw, uh, in many cases profane. Uh, there were uh, anatomically far too correct uh signs and placards and uh, items that were being carried around. You had Madonna, who is still a music act that people pay money to see, which is its own its own choice. Uh, she got up and said something about how she's had dreams about blowing up the White House, if memory serves. Not, a, not exactly the kind of thing that you usually want to rally behind and, and hold up as... Uh, something for all Americans to celebrate. That's pretty crazy. I know she uh, stood down from that or said that, you know, whatever. They, they made it go, it's Madonna. Who, who, it was one of those things where it's like, come on, it's, who cares what she says about this? So, But then I always want to ask, well, if it's a who cares situation, why does she get to stand up on the podium with amplified sound and speak to everybody? Um, but they thought that was such a success, that march for women, it was just called the Women's March, I think, and I, I don't know... What they all think they were marching for, it did seem like just the pro uh, the, the pro abortion lobby was very prominently featured there. And certainly, given what's in the House GOP, see, I'm bringing the show full circle. What's in the House GOP bill as it stands right now? There's supposed to be a defunding of any uh, by with federal dollars of any organization that performs abortions, except in cases of rape, incest, or threat to the life or serious health issue uh, of for the mother. So that will probably feature prominently in all this, I am assuming. Uh, but I don't know how many of you knew this. So I just want to take a moment here that tomorrow is International Women's, Women's, sorry, Women's Day. Tomorrow's International Women's Day, which is celebrated in more than 100 countries. I also did not know that. And or or maybe some of you are with me and just learning this because, of course, this is why this day has been chosen for the Women's March here in D.C. Uh, there was the January Women's March on Washington. That's what they called it. And so now there's supposed to be a day of action. And that means that they're hoping that women are going to stay home from work. Uh, in some cases, we've already seen public school teachers get the approval from their school districts to go to this march and have the day off. So that's cool. You know, if you're paid with taxpayer dollars, maybe now you can have your 
political activity subsidized by the taxpayer, unbeknownst to the taxpayer, or at least without the taxpayer having any say in it, because, you know, what are you going to do? You know, there's the, the teachers unions. They'll throw a fit if anybody tries to crack down on this, I suppose. So you're going to have a bunch of women who are showing up at this Women's March who are teachers who have been given the day off, which, I mean, I suppose we're at a point now where we just have to expect these kind of things. But here's a little bit of the history of International Women's Day. For those of you, again, like me, who are just, I didn't even know that until they were having this march that I found out about tomorrow. I don't even know this was a thing. Learning something new here. So there have been stories, and this is all from the interwebs, where there's a lot of fake news, as you know. So take it for what it's worth. I, it, my my deep dive on, on Google here has led me to information on the International Women's Day, which I cannot uh, confirm or deny the full veracity of this, but I think this is true. I'm at a pretty, I've gone to some pretty good sites to get this stuff. So originally they thought that International Women's Day was established in 1907 uh, to, and this was in response to a protest that was 50 years old or a 50 year anniversary of a protest of garment and textile workers. That's what, uh, that was what history.com was saying here. And no, in fact, that's not true. And they think, I thought this was a great quote or really interesting. Research emerged in the 1980s, it says, suggested that, that the origin myth of International Women's Day was invented in the 1950s as part of a Cold War era effort to separate International Women's Day from its socialist roots, end quote. Oh, here we go. Who could have guessed that International Women's Day is just like May Day and Workers' Day and all these other uh, global people's power, you know, populist worker movements or whatever, movements of the oppressed or movements of the underclass or movements of whatever it is that the communists are pretending to like in, in, in the day that they're talking about it. Yep. This tomorrow has its roots. The Women's Day has its roots in socialism, everybody. Yay, look at that. The Socialist Party of America organized the first National Women's Day on February 28th, 1909. Uh, this reminds me of when you go and you look back at a lot of the early uh, labor protests, including some of the major ones here in New York City. Uh, you had socialist tie-ins to this and I, I think a lot of americans this is always very telling read about the origins of these kind of these events of, of these situations these days of international whatever and they go wait wait a second uh there were there social a socialist part communist party usa socialist party of america these were things oh yeah that's right these were things where did they go you might ask what happened to them they were just taken into the democratic party more or less i mean there's still the communist party usa which only has a few thousand adherents we're told we're told that of course every time the communist party usa endorses the democrat for president they're like oh there's only a few thousand of them okay uh, but the socialist tendency that exists in this country has found a a warm and cozy home in the democrat party as we know bernie sanders is running as an open socialist democrat so now you, you finally have Democrats who are embracing the term socialist. For, for decades, they've been running away from it, saying, oh, no, it's very un-American. And people did think it was un-American. One of the big things that separated us from our European compadres is that uh, we tend to look askance. We tend to be uncomfortable with a socialist government, with socialist policies. Although, uh, if we start to get honest about things, back to earlier conversations from this show about introspection and looking at ourselves, 
we've adopted some policies that look pretty Democrat socialist. Uh, you got to put that out there. We have embraced the welfare state. I'm not saying we as in you and me. I just mean America. We've got a big welfare state going on. We've got a big entitlement state going. Nobody wants to touch it. It is all premised on our ability to keep pushing debt out into the future and to print money and to pay off our obligations by pushing those obligations onto younger generations. That's not nice. But I digress. So International Women's Day was started by a bunch of socialists. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that will be at that march tomorrow uh, that will be saying that they believe in all kinds of uh, socialist policies. They're going to be all in favor of this. Um, the official theme for International Women's Day I'm seeing here in 2017, well, obviously this tomorrow, you know the date, sorry. I'm just re- reading some of this off the various websites with literature about what tomorrow is supposed to be. And I, I, I'm going to give you some lines from the official Women's Day, International Women's or Day Without Women. Or is it Day Without a Woman? I keep getting this wrong. Uh, it's International Women's Day. Yeah, day, hashtag, hashtag. All the cool kids have hashtags. Day without a woman. That's what they're calling it tomorrow. So they want people. Here's what they're saying on the Women's March website. And I'm sure there'll be a pretty big crowd and they'll be walking around on there and yelling about stuff and talking about Trump the fascist and uh, how he's such a misogynist and a sexist and all that. Here's what a Day Without a Woman site says. On International Women's Day, March 8th, women and our allies will act together for equity, justice, and the human rights of women and all gender-oppressed people through a one-day demonstration of economic solidarity. Question for all of you listening. Okay, so this is a lot of women getting together to talk about, you know, woman stuff. You'll notice, though, this curious inclusion of of gender-oppressed people. Well, if it's a march for women, isn't it a march then, de facto, about oppression of women, which in this country legally does not exist? And I, I hate to be the one to get into some, drop some facts here and get into a little bit of details. But in fact, legally speaking, the only uh, that I am aware of, and uh, you can all feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, It is, in fact, the case that women have superior legal rights in some contexts to men, believe it or not. For example, any of you who have spent time in or around family court or know people who have will tell you that longstanding policy that women have a much uh, have much favored status in family court over their male counterparts. That's just reality. Uh, judges have been siding with my, and you could say that you agree with that and it's good and it makes more sense. And I'm, I don't, I don't think I would necessarily disagree with you in most cases, but the point here is that better to be a woman in family court than a man. Uh, women also have, what aren't there special small business loans from the federal government? And there are programs to promote women. In fact, the Trump administration itself is saying that they're building a commission with Canada, I think, to empower women entrepreneurs. So there are special programs to deal with Uh, the advancement of women to promote the advancement of women in all all kinds of fields. And and then, of course, when you get into how gender, quote, gender equity plays out on college campuses, particularly in relations between the sexes, you do not want to be a young man who is accused of any malfeasance, even on very flimsy pretext, no matter what the evidence of your innocence may be. You do not want to be on the wrong end of an accusation as a male from a female these days on a college campus. 
you are in a world of trouble if you are, no matter how innocent you may be, as we have seen from case after case after case uh, that has been handled by these campus courts. We even had an author of, of a book on this issue coming on the show, I believe in our first week, to talk about this, The Rape Frenzy, The Campus Rape Frenzy is the title of the book. So legally speaking, there's no such thing as, legally speaking, meaning under law, there's no such thing as oppression of women in this country. And in fact, you can point to areas of the law where women have advantages over men, and that's just the way it is, and we accept that. Uh, Family court being the most notable example that I can point to. Also, uh, in hiring initiatives, there are, they won't say that it's necessarily for gender parity, but, and they won't say that there are quotas, but clearly in some companies and at some Talk to anybody who's ever hired for professors on in, in different fields. I remember pretty openly a female professor. I think she was a geology professor making jokes at at Mike at Amherst about how you know if you're a, if you're a lady and you want a tenured and you want to be a tenured professor, you better go into like earth sciences or math or engineering because you'll be good to go versus you know European literature or French language study or something like that. Um, so there's all kinds of benefits, but anyway, that's, that's less interesting to me than this inclusion here of all gender oppressed people, because when you go down into the, uh, the fine print on this page or the finer print, it's not at the very bottom, it says that, uh, in the same spirit of love and liberation that inspired the women's March, by the way, love and liberation, there was a lot of nasty stuff at that women's March. We joined together in making March 8th, a day without a woman recognizing the enormous value that women of all backgrounds add to our socioeconomic system while receiving uh, lower wages and experiencing greater inequities, uh, vulnerability, discrimination, sexual harassment, and job security. Uh, The lower wages part of this is not true. They keep keep talking about the the pay inequality, the the gender gap when it comes to pay, and it's a talking point that everyone goes, oh, because, you know, this is an amazing thing about it. Republicans and Democrats love women. And, and have mothers and sisters and wives and best friends and colleagues. And, you know, they, they, there's no one side of the political spectrum that has a, a lockdown. Oh, we're the only ones that like women, even though Democrats like to play that game and pretend. But here's and I, I'm going to have to ta- tackle this on the other side of this break. Here's what's fascinating about the a day without a woman is that they're despite the complaints here about unequal treatment and unequal pay and everything else. That's not a really you know, juicy, exciting, invigorating civil rights issue because women do have legal equality in this country. So what do they need to get people fired up about this? Oh, they need to include non-biological females in this march. Let's talk about that, but we'll talk about it on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. So pro-life women need not apply when it comes to a day without a woman, which is tomorrow. But they they say here, I was reading some USA Today stats in the break, so take those for what they're worth. Say that 2 million women participated in that march in D.C., uh, for which the outcome, the result was what? But you see, this is what I, I have to just put out there for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, I'm, I know. I get discombobulated because there's so much I want to tell you, and, and I, I don't have enough time. We got to hang out more, team. Uh, that pro-life women need not apply for this march, but transgender men, or is it transgender? If you're in the trans, what are you, how does that work again? If you're a woman becoming a man, you're a transgender man or trans, you're transgender, whatever, transgender woman. Okay. 
No, you're transgender man. Whatever you're ending up as is what they say, right? So you're a transgender man. Although you can't actually change your sex, a discussion that we've had before on the show. And I've actually been reaching out to some doctors. I'll tell you, it's hard to find a doctor, uh, a, a an actual medical doctor, you know, a, a scientist who deals in these issues who will come on because they just don't, they just want to do what they do and they don't want to deal with the hate. So even finding someone with an MD who deals with uh, either sexual reassignment surgery or even somebody who's a psychiatrist who, although psychiatrists as you know in the medical profession tend to skew very left side note i've seen studies on the surgeons tend to be republicans psychiatrists democrats interesting uh so they want transgender this is what i meant about the gender oppressed people that are not fem- that are not women so if you're a transgender man You are welcome at this, and in fact, they want you to be there because you now are the vanguard of this progressive uh, civil rights movement for transgender rights. That's how they see it. And this whole march, all of this is not really even about politics. It's not about getting a certain outcome or policy passed. This is the modern culmination of liberalism on display, which is a lot of self-affirmation, patting oneself on the back, and giving people an identity. It gives them a sense of who they are based on what they say they believe without having to take any steps, certainly without having to take any risks or be brave in their positions. No, to go along with all the rest here is all you have to do. And then you get to think you're a good person. It's an affirmation of what an excellent human being you are. In this case, it's mostly women. Although they're saying, I thought this was this was this was nice. Uh, the organizers have a Q and A thing here. Can men participate? Yes, men are being asked to help with caregiving and other domestic chores on Wednesday. Now, to the men listening, you should be helping with caregiving and domestic chores as a as an equal partner in your relationship, as you and your partner and your wife. That's right, your wife. Uh, see fit. But uh, if if I were married, which I am not, and my wife was like, "You're you're in charge of all this stuff," because I want to go to the women's march for equality, I'd be like, "Honey, we gotta have a talk. We gotta have a little sit down here." Also of note, because I told you about the socialist roots of this whole International Women's Day, International, you know, blank anything, Women's uh, Women's Day, Workers' Day. You name it, except for International Puppy Day. That's awesome across the board. No questions asked. No doubt about it. Is that a thing? I don't know. If it's not a thing, it should be. It probably is. Um, I'm pretty sure I had somebody on once for International Sloth Day, and she was a sloth expert, and she was an excellent guest. Uh, But they're asked, why should you wear red? And the organizers say that they selected the color red to represent, quote, revolutionary love and sacrifice, and red also has a history with the labor movement, i.e., they want the ladies to wear red because hashtag commies and socialists. Because that's where the origin of this all comes from. Never mind what status movements, whether socialist, communists, or otherwise, do to the family and their efforts. And we could go back, we could go Marx and Engels on this. Oh, there are so many discussions I'd want to have with you about the destruction of the family as a central goal of the central planners. But no, tomorrow's just going to be a lot of women marching around like, we hate Trump. We want more equality. It's like, well, if you have equality, do you do you get more equality? Doesn't that make it not equal? I know, crazy questions I'm asking here. We've got more. Back in a few. 
Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. We've got our friend Emily Zanotti from Heat Street joining us now, where she is the political editor. Emily, great to have you. A lot of Heat Street talk this week because of the whole piece about the FISA and the Trump. Yeah, we actually were one of the first outlets that uh, uncovered the FISA courts had actually said that they would not pursue a warrant. This was back in November, so uh, we got to be on the front lines of that this week. So there you go. People were talking about people were talking about it a lot. So uh, Heat Street in the headlines. Speaking of headlines in Heat Street, oh look at that silky smooth transition, Mr. Sexton. Well done. Uh, <laughs> let's get let's get it going here with uh, your uh, your piece. Socially aware babysitting club lets liberal parents go protest while kids learn the ways of the left. Is this about the day without yeah. a woman march tomorrow? It kind of is. So it turns out there are a lot of protests and boycotts and all of these confusing activist things that are happening right now. And if you have kids and you're also a social justice warrior, it's really hard to find somebody to pawn your children off of while you go and pursue your social justice agenda. So this system will actually provide for a babysitter while you go and protest, and they will educate your children in the ways of social justice while you're gone. Do you think they'll tell people that the origins of the International Women's Day are from a bunch of uh, like left-wing commie types, or are they just going to keep that under wraps? I think they're going to keep that one under wraps. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. History people, they, yeah. need, they need to know it. The kids need to be taught the history stuff, but of course they won't. Other than the founding fathers were evil and America is a, a horrible and flawed forever right. uh, racist and Everything evil colonial enterprise, which I'm glad the kids are all learning that in school now because that's going to that's gonna help them later in life. Um, but but I digress there. What are you expecting tomorrow? What are your peeps, what are your sources telling you about this day, as you are a woman? Uh, so not that that would give you any <laughs> insights other than I suppose you could go to this march and be accepted as one, whereas yes. I, as a man, I'm supposed to stay at home and help with chores, I'm told by the organizers. But what are you expecting for tomorrow? And Is, is there a, a companion march in Chicago or is it only in D.C.? So actually, I'm in Phoenix today at spring training for the Cubs. And I have no idea if we are actually going to participate in some sort of march tomorrow. But from what I understand, it is actually a day off for all women. So they are supposed to stay in their homes. They're not supposed to leave. They're not supposed to buy anything. If they do go out, it should be, you know, they're supposed to wear red in solidarity with each other. It's not fully thought out frankly. Um, but Haven't they already had one bite at the apple here with the Women's March before? Right. Which was, uh, the messaging there would, to be charitable, could be called uh, muddled, uh, unclear. Right. Why don't we see something different now? With Why can't there be equality for all women? I, I told everybody that they're including transgender women in this, so they yeah. want equality, in fact, for women who are not women. An, in- an interesting, interesting addition to this. And they don't seem to have thought about what happens if tomorrow actually goes really smoothly for everyone who's not a woman. If they suddenly disappear from the face of the earth tomorrow and nothing changes, then it's not exactly going to pursue their political agenda. I, I just wish they could point to an area of the law that they wish there where, where they believe there should be change. We, we've already had all kinds of changes done because of gender discrimination, either in the past perceived, perceived right. or real. 
including all the stuff they've done with Title IX. So, you know, now, for example, there are schools where they had to get rid of, you know, the university level, they have to get rid of wrestling teams because they need to balance yep. it out. And they need to have, you know, uh, the, the women's crew. We always joke around the women's crew team at the University of Massachusetts because it was a varsity team versus the men's crew team at the University of, Mar- University of Mar- Massachusetts because crew is an expensive sport. So at some of these mm-hmm. schools, they love to throw money at very at, at high-dollar women's sports when they can because they want to have the football team for the men and all the other stuff they throw the money at. So you end up getting... This this bizarre circumstance where it's not based on student need or interest. It's like if, if you're on the women's crew team at UMass, you know you were getting the the <laughs> the BMW, the, the Maserati of crew shells, which cost like thirty right. grand to roll around in. Oops. Yeah. Uh, yep. We... And actually, if you uh, think about it, there's already a ton of laws on the books that mandate equality. If you do not treat the women, if you do not pay the women the same as you would pay a man, you're in big legal trouble. I feel like you're mansplaining right now as a woman to your fellow women, though. Like, like right now, it's, it's as though you've become a part of the patriarchy. I am. I'm being absorbed into the patriarchy right now. You're selling I, I out the matriarchy so hard right now. I don't even, if, if they're listening somewhere, they're very upset. Yeah, they're going to be like, you're back to making sandwiches. You're no longer allowed to talk. Oh, that would be, that would be such a, that wouldn't even be a microaggression. It would be a macroaggression, and they would have to send you into a safe space somewhere. Let's get into let's get into the latest uh, T. So anyway, we, we got the oh, women are getting tattoos of the Mitch McConnell quote in a protest they against are. Trump. I'm just saying this is also on history. What's this all about? So Mitch McConnell was the guy who told Elizabeth Warren to get off the floor while she was basically filibustering illegally on the floor of the Senate. And at the time, he told media that nevertheless. She persisted. Right. He was warned. He said, like this, nevertheless, she, she persisted. Just like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good, right? I don't, yeah. That is that is pretty good. I mean, I've met this guy, and he's yeah. that's pretty good. I, know, I could call you on the phone and be like, it's Mr. McConnell. Go ahead. <laughs> right. I don't know why he'd call me, but. So now women are getting the nevertheless, she persisted, quote, tattooed on their lower backs. Because that doesn't seem like a strange place to put a tattoo. But they don't quite realize that this quote isn't actually Elizabeth Warren's quote. They seem to think that she's completely embraced it. But actually, it turns out they're inking the top of their cheeks with a Mitch McConnell quote. Wow. Mitch, Mitch McConnell <laughs> is, is, is marking, marking people up left and right. That's, that's amazing. I had, I had no idea. I just saw this now. Um, TSA, and there's no easy way, this is a hard turn, TSA is telling people to prepare to be touched in their sensitive areas because of the new pat-down technique, as if the TSA was not, uh, actually, I'm going to be flying tomorrow, so hey, TSA, you're great, thank you for all you do, but as if the TSA did not have enough criticism and scrutiny, this is not going to help. Right, so the TSA says that their agents cannot handle five separate different protocols for pat-downs. So instead, they rolled it all into one, and they told their agents that they are now allowed to use the front part of their palm to get deep into those crevices if they think you are hiding an explosive. So they have said to people who are traveling to gird your loins, essentially, for a much more intimate experience with the TSA than before. And even better is they've notified law enforcement that it's entirely possible that people will be making complaints about 
certain assaults that they might feel from the TSA uh, pat downs. Oh, this is gonna this is gonna result in in so many problems. But <laughs> the Democratic Party wants you to know, America, that these TSA pat downs are necessary because of all those right wing right. Tea Party terrorists. So just you know, be aware of that. That's that's the real threat. Don't be concerned about anything else. Um, also, wanted to ask you about Trump not acknowledging. The F. Well, this is Comey's claim that Trump Tower wasn't wiretap. What is so? What is is Trump just? Is he just ignoring it when people ask him about it, or is he not responding to press requests? What's what is this all about? So they have not responded at all. Now, Comey has said that the FBI itself did not issue the wiretaps, but he has asked the DOJ to please clarify exactly who may have asked the FISA court for these wiretaps. Uh, permissions if, in fact, they did happen. Now, unfortunately, Jeff Sessions is at the head of the DOJ, and Jeff Sessions has recused himself from any investigation into connections between Trump and Russia. So there's no one at the DOJ to say firmly that the wiretaps didn't happen. Comey says they didn't, but the Trump White House is saying, until we hear from the DOJ, we're not willing to make any claims that we are certain this did not happen. Wait, so, and you were telling me before, and I feel like this got lost in the translation of the huge media firestorm around all this, that Heat Street's reporting was that the there was a FISA request, but it was turned down, and there was no request yes. that was approved? I thought that they had two so, requests, and the second one was approved. Or is that The Guardian? It might have been another paper. I, you know. That was The Guardian. Uh, that was The Guardian, <laughs> so we okay. we have to share credit for this. He actually knew back in November that there was a FISA a warrant put forth toward the FISA court, and the FISA court turned it down. Now, it turns out that the, uh, the body that wanted this wiretap actually went back to the FISA court with a much more narrowly tailored warrant, and they got that approved. We thought that it was at Trump Tower. That is not very clear right now. We think that it actually was in a server in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that has to do with a Russian bank. So they were looking at a Russian bank's interactions in the United States. So we still have a lot of details to fill in, and our team is still working on it. But we have some of the very first reporting. Now, now, now Louise Mensch, who broke the story and was your editor-in-chief at Heat Street, is that right, or yeah. senior editor-in-chief? Uh, she, she no longer is at Heat Street, but she broke the story initially about Trump and, and the Pfizer request surrounding Trump in mm-hmm. some capacity, right? She was the one. And she's right. very anti-Trump, which I think is interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a nice I, way I, I think she it, may yeah. have even tweeted at me once being like, just wait until the just wait until the whole thing comes crashing down, Buck, and he's being frog marched out of the White House. And I was like, whoa, really? <laughs> it's like that? It's Apparently intense. it is like that. It is very, very intense, and uh, she's a great investigator, so I, I, I guess we'll see. I don't know. She didn't it, say exactly that, just so everybody understands, but it was clear to me that she thinks that this is going to go somewhere. You know, we should have her on the show. I know she was on Fox last night. I'm just realizing this now. We'll, we'll invite Louise on so she can tell us, but I just remember seeing a tweet from her. I was like, oh, oh, she Russia <laughs> is running Trump, and, and this is a thing. Okay, okay, good to know. But I think it's interesting that, that, that the, uh, the Pfizer request itself is now being used by many Trump supporters and Trump defenders as evidence of Obama overreach when originally it came from somebody right. who was of the Trump is a Russia whatever, you know, part of this Russia conspiracy. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a crazy, it's a basically yeah. a crazy world we live in, Emily. It is a lot of loose threads and it's very crazy. Every day it gets a little bit crazier. All right, well, I'm just sad. I'm going to have to miss out on the day without a woman tomorrow in in dc but I, I look forward to seeing all of the 
uh, anatomically far too correct and profane signs and all the other stuff. I'm. Ass- Do you think it'll be there again, or have they? Will they clean up the act a little bit from the women's march, which was like, whoa, ladies, there are children watching. I am 100% sure it will all be there again. I don't think they even hold protests without complete costumes. Oh, man. Well, everybody, yeah. uh, I can't give you, because this is radio, but the visuals just uh, open the interwebs tomorrow, type in news and women's march, and you're going to be like, whoa, crazy world. Yeah. Of all right. Emily Zanotti, our friend from it. Heat Street, where she's political editor. Please check out her latest on heatstreet.com. Emily, good to have you. Thanks a lot. Uh, 844-900-2825 if you want to throw in some comments here before we get into our last few minutes together, which makes me very sad of the evening. Um, But we got to go into break, so we'll be right back. Team, I want to close out the the, uh, day with you today with a note of hope. And for that, we can turn to the one and only, our friend, uh, Representative Louis Gomert of Texas, who was asked about the GOP's health care plan, and he shared the following nugget of wisdom. I'm glad we finally got a bill out. It's not 2,500 pages. It's, uh, it's a starting point. So as long as we're able to get amendments to the floor that will fix some huge problems with the bill that's now been filed, then we'll be okay. I think amidst the um, horse excrement, we can find a pony around here somewhere, and that's what we're going to be looking to have. I think we'll have a racehorse as long as we get a good amendments when we're done. Yeah, I- I'm hoping we can find a pony too. I'm hoping there. <laughs> I'll borrow from from uh, from Louis there for a second, and uh, I think that there's certainly room for improvement here. But I-, I believe that at some point the conversation will shift. There'll be a switch. And all of a sudden, people will realize, and I mean all of us who have been looking at Obamacare as deeply flawed and problematic for years, that yes, it it certainly is. All that is true. But the replacement of it is not going to necessarily do many of the things that I think are broadly expected to happen when you all of a sudden get the repeal and replace in place. Uh, We also, uh, since we're in, hopefully, we got Paul Ryan, too. He's been out there on the stump defending this and uh, clip 25, Paul Ryan, Obamacare. Mercy, please. Let's not forget, Obamacare is collapsing. Obamacare isn't staying. If we did nothing, the law would collapse and leave everybody without affordable health care. We are doing an mer- act of mercy by repealing this law and replacing it with patient-centered health care reforms that we as conservatives have been arguing for and fighting for for years. I hope he is right. There's a lot riding on this. You know, one of the uh, truths, I think, at this point that we all must uh, embrace and accept is that the Republican Party has been saying for a long time now, for, as, for longer than I've even been working in media, so going on six years, uh, they've been saying that all we need is to be in a position of power and have the have the government levers in our hands and we'll make the decisions that get it done for you. We'll, we'll do the right things when it comes to not just healthcare, any number of areas, but healthcare has been a primary one. And I think you can see from some of the early moves from within the House GOP that there's a recognition that some of the ideas the Democrats push forward with Obamacare, whether they're free market or not, 
whether they are up to individual choice or not, are popular. And Trump's resonance, keep in mind, I think, on the policy front with a lot of people across the country is that his promise has been to do things that are popular with the American people, not with the elites, not with particular special interest groups, but have broad and sweeping popularity among many Americans. And if they approach the health care bill in that way, I wouldn't think that it will necessarily be the free market, conservative, individual based and individual responsibility based. Another very important component of all this, because remember what I'm saying to you about this. Many others will not tell you this. And I've spoken to the healthcare experts, as I said to you before, some of them are, are friends of mine on air, off air, I've been following this issue for, for years as closely as I can, because it, it does really affect all of us. I mean, every time you go to the doctor, you get a bill in the mail, anything, right? You're dealing with the family policies for your kids. We all want to believe that there's a way to make this um, not very costly. And if you want access to the best care in the world at very advanced drugs and treatments, and especially when you really need them, there are costs to these things. And when you look at what has happened in Europe, I know we like to think of you know Europe and it's like, oh, the French, they, they don't even show up for work well, in uh, two days a week and they're so lazy. And, you know, well, no, uh, the European countries have embraced some of these policies about healthcare really as a human right, as opposed to healthcare as a commodity. And, we have, whether we recognize it or not, in many ways done that too in this country. Um, Medicare is considered to be politically untouchable. And emergency room visits now, whether no matter who you are, of course, and I can understand that. I agree, I'm not saying I don't agree with these. I'm just saying that. Uh, and then beyond that, there's Medicaid, which is a welfare health care program for the poor. And you look at our health care spending by the government and the way that money is doled out. And government's still going to be very involved in this whole process. So I, I guess I'm trying to help both focus the conversation on the real root of the problem as well as manage expectations for what is going to come out of this whole process because it is not going to be some Ayn Randian uh, healthcare dream scheme. That much I can promise you. All right, team, please download the show. iTunes, a great place to subscribe. Buck Sexton with America now. Back with you tomorrow night. Shields high.